All right, we have our kids' class available at this time, just in the back room of this large room. Kids are more than welcome to head off uh, to your class. And if you're new with us or just not aware, we offer a nursery every Sunday as well uh, that meets in the room right over here off to the corner that's fully staffed. You're welcome to use that. And uh, also as well, for uh, however old your kids may be, they're more than welcome to stick right here in the service with us. That's just fine too. Well, join me if you would in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 45 to 56 this morning. Mark chapter 6. Uh, together. When you see something breathtaking, I don't know about you, but uh, I know for me, I often want to take out my phone and try to capture a picture of it. But more often than not, whenever it seems like I, my eyes have just witnessed something absolutely incredible and I take out my picture to, or my phone to take out a picture, it feels like my phone never fully captures what my eyes have seen and witnessed. I can think of a few examples of this. Uh, I've often thought, wow, the moon sure is big and awesome tonight, or maybe the sun, or, or, or some uh, light in the sky. And I've taken out my phone thinking, wow, it's so big and it's so awesome, and snap. And I looked at it and thought, well, it looks so tiny on my phone. Uh, or maybe uh, well, we prayed for the hunters in South Africa this morning, when my wife and I went out to visit them a few years back, uh, they took us along the coastline there of South Africa, and uh, you've got the ocean, and in many places, these awesome, beautiful cliffs, and beaches, and various things, and I remember taking out my phone, and I, my eyes had seen something, and I thought, this is incredible, take out my phone, snap, well, that's cool, but that's not what I'm seeing, like, that's just not capturing it all, or maybe you've done that with the Canadian Rockies, or some other place. There's this awesome, breathtaking reality, and then there's this insufficient, deficient picture that you just took. Followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to them oftentimes as disciples, typically have an insufficient or deficient view of Jesus. You and I often have the camera view of Jesus, the phone view of Jesus, which, truthfully, it may be accurate in many ways, but it doesn't do justice to the full glory of Jesus Christ. In Mark 6, verses 45 to 56, that's the disciples. They're just not seeing Jesus in all of his glory. And as Jesus works with them and he trains them, he is trying to help them see that. He wants these 12 men to see Jesus in all of his majestic glory. And really, Jesus does that with all of his disciples, with all of his followers. He's working so that all of us might see him in his full, majestic glory. We need to see his glory. Because Jesus loves you so much, he is intent on showing you his glory. Why would he do that? Because you seeing his glory is absolutely critical to you becoming a better disciple. So why don't we read this text, Mark 6, verses 45 to 46, and I think we'll see Jesus just showing his majestic, awesome glory to his followers to help them become better disciples. Mark 6, verse 45, down to 56. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. We read that immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I want to show you four indicators this morning that Jesus wants you to see his glory. First, Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will create opportunities for you to see it. He arranges an awful night on the sea for his disciples to see his glory. And Jesus will do that. He will arrange scenarios often tailor-made just for you as well. And I think what you can expect in your life are many uncomfortable grace moments. Moments that Jesus has arranged, that God has arranged, and they are uncomfortable, but they are moments of grace for you to see God's glory. I had a soccer coach who uh, played professionally for, it was either Uruguay or Paraguay, I don't really remember, but he knew a thing or two about soccer. And one of the things that he knew how to do was formulate and execute a, but- a brutal conditioning practice. I had been in, through many conditioning practices, but none like his. I had never experienced any form of exercise that was so grueling because he had fashioned the whole thing so that one moment you're jogging along and exerting and, and using certain muscles in, the bo- in your body and the next moment you're full out sprinting and then back and forth and then you're laying on your back doing crunches and then the next thing and this and that literally just breaking down every component of your body. He was targeting and exposing areas of bodily weakness and simultaneously strengthening them. And in that moment, truthfully, I wasn't sure if he loved me or if he hated me and he was just mad at what happened in the last game. It was painful. But it was also tailor-made and designed for my good and the good of our team. You might call it an uncomfortable grace. Jesus will design settings like that for you to see his glory. He will fashion uncomfortable settings of his grace in your life. In those uncomfortable grace moments, he will sovereignly lead you into those. Look back at verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Verse 45 says that he made them get in the boat and go to the other side. The word is strong, that word made, meaning to force, compel, or urge. And what's interesting is the the disciples obey. And as a result of their obedience, they soon found themselves in a very bad situation. Imagine that, you obey Jesus and things go sideways. Jesus is leading them into this. And do you know what else you might find? Jesus may seemingly abandon you in these moments of uncomfortable grace. 
You may be left without any sense of his presence. Jesus, where are you? God, where did you go? Look at verses 45 to 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, where was the boat? Well, the boat was on the sea. And where was Jesus? He was alone on the land. So Jesus sends his disciples across the sea. He sends the crowd away. Jesus goes up onto a mountain by himself to pray. And before long, the disciples are down on the sea, fighting the waves and the wind and everything else. And Jesus is up on the mountain praying. He left them on their own. Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will create opportunities, sometimes very difficult opportunities, for you to see his glory And he will sovereignly lead you into those moments. And it may even seem like he's abandoned you there without a sense of his presence. And you're asking, God, where are you? And along with that, it may feel like he has left you without any explanation. Jesus offers his disciples here in Mark zero explanation for the situation, for why he told them what to do. Zero. God is not obligated to explain his plan to you. God is not obligated to give you all the details and all the explanation for what he's doing. God is not obligated to explain his plan to you, but you and I are obligated to accept it. And we may even find in moments of obedience that it seems like we end up in a mess. Well, here's a question for you. Was there an explanation for why Jesus sent these men into the boat? Perhaps. In fact, in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, John tells us that after Jesus fed the 5,000, he started to sense something. This is John 6, verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they, speaking of this, the, the 5,000, 5 to 20,000 people that showed up for the feeding of the 5,000, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, To make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So after this miraculous feeding of 10, 15, 20,000 people, Jesus perceived that this massive crowd wanted to make him king and, and most likely throw off the Romans. The scene has become politically charged and apparently Jesus does not want his disciples affected by that. That idea is contrary to his mission and without any explanation, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And we ask, well, if that is the case, and we're not 100% sure, but let's say that's the reason that Jesus had him get in the boat. Well, why doesn't Mark include those details? Because those details don't fit Mark's purpose. Mark wants us to be hit with just how uninformed Jesus has left these men. He doesn't give them any of those details. Jesus will lead you into situations where it seems like he's nowhere to be found and you have no idea what's going on. And you may, did I do something wrong? Did I disobey? Why this situation? These men obeyed. They have no details. Where is Jesus? They don't know. If it's movie night at your house, what do you prefer? Do you prefer to leave the lights on just in case it gets a little bit scary? Or do you prefer to turn them all off so that the only thing catching your eyes is screen? No distractions, nothing. In the Utley house, I will say that we do not agree on this matter. Personally, I like it dark. 
And to support my case, I would highlight that if you go to a theater where the professionals are showing movies, the lights are always out, and the focus all of a sudden becomes this massive, magnificent screen. And if someone's got their little cell phone glowing in front of you, that's really annoying. When Jesus decides to show off his glory, which is what he's going to do in this text, he often flicks out all the lights. A sense of his presence? Nope. Flick. A sense of understanding of what's going on? No, no, no. Flick. A sense of direction? Flick. A sense of security? Flick. No, 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 and no. Flick, 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 and flick. Total darkness. Pitch black. And then boom, God's glory on display. My glory, God often says, and my radiance are often best seen in the dark. And that's where he's leading his men. No direction, no clue what's going on. Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will literally create opportunities for you to see it. Often very uncomfortable grace type of moments. And all of this has to do with the fact that Jesus loves you. Next time you find yourself in a situation that you have not chosen or you go, I would never choose this. Perhaps you should just pause and reflect for a moment. Could, could it be that God has actually ordained this entire situation and fashioned this entire situation so that you could see his glory? You get let go of your job. You get an unexpected diagnosis. You get tasked with something or you find yourself in some situation that you go, I am not competent for this. Or you get into something that is just way over your head. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to navigate that. I don't know how to walk through this. I just don't know what to do. I think it's interesting that as a master teacher, Jesus knows that oftentimes providing his students with an experience is often exponentially more effective than endlessly repeating the classroom material again and again and again. Or just go read this again and again and again. And he does teach that way. He does instruct us that way. He's given us his word and he tells us, you read this and you read this and you read this and you read this. It's true. I'm telling you, it's true. But Jesus knows that some lessons are best learned, not just in in the book, so to speak, but in the field of life. Jesus doesn't just tell us or teach us certain things about his glory. He says, it's true in this book. Now I'm going to show you it by experience. I'm going to demonstrate it for you through the life situations that I ordain for you. Jesus is so intent on seeing you, you seeing his glory. And there's another indicator of that in this text. He's so intent on that that he will put it on full display for you to see. Look at verse 48. So Jesus is up on the mountain, and verse 48 says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. By the way, that's a miracle. Where these men are at in the lake, and Jesus is up on this this mountain? How's anybody supposed to see this? But Jesus does. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And the end of verse 48 tells us that he meant to pass by them. There are two big ideas in verse 48 that all of the other thoughts in the verse hang on grammatically. What are they? Well, these two big thoughts. One is that he came to them. 
And the second big thought is that he intended to pass by them. Everything, in the ver- everything else in the verse hangs on one of those phrases. He came to them and he intended to pass by them. He came to them. I want you to take note of something that I think is very instructive. Jesus does not calm the intense headwinds. That's not his intent here. He does not immediately alleviate the struggle or the the seemingly endless agony of rowing, fruitlessly rowing against the waves all night long. That's not his intent here. Rather, the text says that he comes to his disciples in their hour of need. He came to them. That's amazing. We're often praying, God, make it stop, make it get easier. And Jesus, he's not, he doesn't intend to do that in this moment. What's his plan? I'm going to come to these men in their time of need. He came to them. I told you that most of the, the verse hangs off one of these two big phrases. And most of it actually hangs off this first phrase that he came to them. We might ask, well, why did he come? Well, the verse tells us, because he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. You can rest assured of something. Jesus sees you. He's up on the mountain. They're down there on the sea. Jesus, where are you? Well, he's actually watching them. And even when Jesus seems far away, he's nearby. He knows what's going on and he's able to help. Why did he come? Because he saw them and what was going on. When did he come? Well, the text says that he didn't come until the fourth watch of the night. Uh, That would be 3 to 6 a.m. Verse 47 said, by the time evening came, the boat was already out on the water. So if we do a little bit of math here, these men have now struggled for somewhere between 6 to 12 hours out there on the sea, basically getting nowhere fast. Before Jesus comes to them, I think it's a reminder that God may allow struggles to rage on in your life for a very long time. He may allow you to feel a lack of his presence for a very long time. He came to them. Well, how did he come? In what manner did he come to them? He came, the text says, walking on the sea. What? I mean, the the wind's blowing like crazy. The waves are no doubt up and down. These guys are being blown off course. And here comes Jesus through all that turbulence walking on the sea. Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will put it on full display for you to see. Jesus wants you to see his glory He came to them, and the end of verse 48 says this. It says that he meant, or he intended to do what? To pass by them. It doesn't say that he came out there intending to calm it and make it all better. What's Jesus' intention? His intention is to come to them in their hour of need and pass by them. Now, perhaps you picture Jesus walking right by the disciples and saying, Hi, good luck as they just continue to struggle in this misery and agony. I, that can't be what's going on. I mean, that just cannot be right. I want you to note two words in the verse, at the end of the verse there. It says that he intended to pass by them. Pass 
by. Up to this point in Scripture, has God ever done that with anybody before? Passed by them? So if you took your Bible and you just thought this whole side of your Bible, your whole Old Testament, the whole left side of your Bible, has God ever done that before? Has God ever passed by anybody? Is there any biblical precedent for that language? Well, there certainly is. And you may be thinking of an instance or two. I want you to turn with me back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, I want to read for you verses 18 to 22. The context here is that Moses is on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18, I'll read down to verse 22. Moses says this to God. He said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness. Note note the specific language that comes next. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And verse 22, and while my glory does what? Passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have done what? Passed by. God is showing Moses his glory and he's saying, my glory is so great that that you cannot see me in all of my glory and live, but I will pass by in front of you and I will give you a glimpse of my glory. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. This is the account of Elijah. And he's just been quite depressed, actually. There's been the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And, and Elijah has run several kilometers on, front, on foot in front of Ahab's chariot. He ends up down under a juniper tree, all depressed. And he just says, God, take my life. The nation's not going to turn back to you. I'm no better than my father's. He's just a mess. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, Elijah ends up on Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. Let's look at this verse. 1 Kings 19, verse 11. And he, and he said, go out. This is, these instructions are given to Elijah. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord did what? He passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. You can turn back to Mark's gospel. God just showed himself and he showed his glory to Elijah. He passed by, he showed it to Elijah. He passed by and he showed it to Moses. When the text says that Jesus intended to pass by the twelve walking on the sea, no less. Jesus intended to show these men his glory. 
Jesus was putting his divinity on display. It's one of those moments like you're standing in front of this beautiful mountain range or, or something like that, and you're just, wow! This is incredible. These men are supposed to have one of those moments with Jesus. Jesus intended to show them his glory, to highlight for them that he is God. He wanted them to see that. And he also wanted them to see and realize his presence and his power. He is God. And Jesus wants the same for you. He wants you to be fully aware of the fact that he is God. He wants you to be fully aware of his presence, that he is with you. And he wants you to be fully aware of his power. He comes to these men walking on the waves. This has defied every rule of science and nature. Jesus is walking where only God can walk. In Job chapter 9, verse 8 and 11, it says this of of God. And and as Job speaks these words, in his mind, he's thinking of God the Father. Job says, God alone stretches out the heavens. And then he says this, and treads on the waves of the sea. Job said, when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. In other words, he is transcendent. His glory is so great, I can't even fully comprehend it. He's in a category all his own. And here in this text, Jesus is walking where only God can walk. Jesus is the Son of God. He treads where no man can tread. He walks where only God can walk on the waves of the sea, as Job said. Jesus wants you to see his glory. And I think there's also this reminder that whatever may be in your face, whatever may be over your head and creating tumult in your life is under the feet of Jesus. He is God the trouble at your job, the trouble in your home, the trouble in your body, the trouble in your soul and in your heart, your lack of time, energy, money, resources. Jesus treads above it all. He is Lord and he wants to show you that. In fact, he may have gone so far to create the chaos and the tumult in your life so that you can see that, that he is Lord, that he is God, that he is the Son of God. Fifteen years ago or so, I went to visit my dad in Arizona. And while I was there, a friend and I decided that we wanted to hike a mountain together called Flatiron. And we were young, and so we thought we, and we thought we were in relatively good shape. So we thought, well, let's time ourselves and let's see how fast we can get up this mountain. Well, it turned out to be a hot and intense hike. Getting up there wasn't so easy, but the view at the top sure was great. I mean, you've been exerting yourself and sweating and you're sore and tired and you get up there. I think we had packed lunches and ate on, sat on top and ate our lunches up there and just took in the glory of what we were seeing on, up on top of that mountain. That view, though, that we were enjoying is not enjoyed by, by sitting in comfort, by sitting in your air-conditioned home and staying on the ground. That view is almost always accompanied by sweat, exertion, and sore muscles. There will, there will be many, many things that you will learn and see about God, views that you would maybe never otherwise see when life is comfortable. And I don't, I don't know what you have going on, but your pain may be incredible. It may be unbearable. It may be horrifying. But the view that God will afford you of himself from that position is even greater 
than whatever you're going through. Jesus wants you to see his glory. And whatever you've got going on right now in your life, Jesus has led you into that situation so that you can see it. Do you believe that? And are you looking for God's glory in the midst of what's going on? Here's maybe a question for you. Which do you want more? If, if you've got two options on the table, which do you want more? Do you want out of your trouble and you want all of this to just go away and disappear? Or do you want to see Jesus in all of his glory? I would encourage you that maybe the way that you're praying needs to change and even be reoriented because often what we pray first and foremost is, God, would you fix this? God, would you, would you make this go away? God, would, would you do this and would you do that? And all these things. And those prayers are appropriate. But maybe our prayers need reordered because often that's the prayer at the top of the list. And I would just suggest that there should be a prayer that goes above that and that those prayers become subservient to. Perhaps your first prayer should be, God, would you show me your glory? That's what I want to see. And God, subservient to that, and whatever you want to teach me and whatever your sovereign will is, I pray, would you do this? Show me your glory. But it's not just that Jesus wants you to see his glory. He also wants you to benefit from it. Look at verses 49 to 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they, were, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The disciples don't recognize Jesus. And at first you'd think, why would they? You wouldn't expect anyone to come walking on the sea, would you? They, they think that they have seen a water phantom and they cry out and they were terrified. And in verse 50, Jesus reassures them with these words, it is I. It's me. Look at verse 50 again. It says they all saw him. It wasn't like one or two of them were hallucinating. They all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus reassures them that it's him. And two implications go with that reassurance. He says to them first, he says, Take heart or take courage. It's me. And then he says, It's me. Don't be afraid. Recognizing Jesus for who he is brings courage. And recognizing Jesus for who he is drives away fear. When you realize that the one who powerfully treads on the waves of the sea is present with you, his presence brings courage and it drives fear away. You don't need to be afraid. And they welcome Jesus into the boat. And if you find yourself lacking courage and you find yourself completely overtaken by fear, Could it be that maybe that's an indicator that you have not yet realized that Jesus is with you and that he's all-powerful and that he's God? Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will put it on full display for you to see. There's a third indicator as well. He's so intent on showing you his glory that he will show it to you again and again and again and again And again, even when you miss it. Look at verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, 
and the wind ceased, he did eventually calm this storm. And, and the text tells us they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus gets into the boat, the wind ceases. When Matthew records this story in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 33, it says at that point, Jesus gets in the boat, the, the, the storm is calmed. It says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They have seen something of the glory of Jesus. But Mark here says that the disciples were utterly astounded. Their minds were blown. And Mark connects that to something negative. Mark explains that the reason the disciples were utterly astounded was this. He says, for, or the idea is it's causal, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, Mark is highlighting the fact that these men should, should not have been utterly astounded at all. Why are they standing there going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. They shouldn't be surprised. The disciples had seen Jesus again and 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 again show off his glory to them. He had just fed five to 20,000 people and these disciples had carried the baskets of food. He had just healed Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. They watched Jesus deliver a demoniac from thousands of demons. He's a totally different man. A previous time out at sea, they had watched Jesus calm this storm when they were fearing for their lives. They thought they were going to die. And that's just a handful of what these men had seen. He has showed them his glory again and again and again. And it's not really that they're willfully obstinate here, but they're spiritually imperceptive. They just aren't seeing it. It's like they're, the, the, the cell phone picture, that's what they're looking at. Jesus has just put his glory on display. It's like they're standing before this glorious mountain of God's glory. And all that they're seeing is this picture that they just snapped in their brains. They're so slow to grasp the full glory, deity, grandeur, and splendor of Jesus. But what does he do? He just keeps showing it to them again and again and again and again. He's so patient. I was several months into grade one, and I think most of my classmates were reading rather well by that point. But not me. I, <laughs> I couldn't read. And I made all kinds of excuses. Reading groups would come. And I remember I went to the eye doctor. I got reading glasses and I didn't need them. It was just like I was making all kinds of excuses. I have, maybe it's my eyes, mom. I can't read. I was not doing well. And it finally came to the point where I remember my dad lovingly, I don't know what time at night, sometime after dinner, taking me into his office every night. I'd be up on his lap in his office chair and I'd have my little reader book in front of me and we were just grinding it out. One sound, one syllable at a time, just struggling through every word. As he painstakingly tried to help me learn to read, he just patiently hammered through all those sounds. We had just been through it. We're going through it again. Until all of a sudden I was actually getting it. And I think as a loving Heavenly Father that God is often like that. He's just so patient. You're not seeing it. Let me show it to you again. And again, and again, and again. 
Jesus is so intent on showing you his glory that he will show it to you again and again. He loves you, and he wants you to get it. These men, they saw Jesus could feed 20,000 people. They saw he had previously come to see. And yet maybe in that moment, it's almost like, well, can he do anything here and now? And I think we find ourselves in a similar situation when we say things like, yes, God, I know you can. In fact, uh, I, I know that you've done all these things in my life in the past. And in fact, if I slow down and articulate, I, I could articulate dozens of things you have done for me throughout my earthly journey. But my situation here and now feels different. I know you can do the, the impossible, but my situation is beyond impossible. This one's unique. After all the road you've walked with Jesus and you still don't, you still don't know him well enough. And I don't either. But he wants you to. How many things must Jesus do? How many things must God do for you before you really get it that he is God and he was always in 100% control? He is always present. He is always powerful. He always does what is right. Why do you doubt God? And why are you surprised when he does great things? Shouldn't you expect that God would do God things all the time? Also, I think from a passage like this, you should probably expect that there will be trials and there will be difficulties all throughout your life's journey because they're often the catalyst that God uses to reveal himself. I want you to get it. I want you to see my glory. I think it's possible that you could be sitting here today. You could have spent decades in church by now. You could have all kinds of exposure to the Bible and to God and to Jesus. You could know all kinds of things about him and you could still be looking at this camera picture of Jesus and not have your eyes yet open to who he really is. He is God. And your eyes don't realize that that he is God in the flesh come here to earth to save you and he can. Because of who he is. And maybe you know all kinds of things about Jesus, but you have not yet realized, oh, he's God. And he came here to earth to die on a cross and save me. Take all my sin, live perfectly in my place. And he can do that. Why? Because he is God. And what he wants you to see even today is his glory. That he is God. And that he can save you. And he wants you to cry out, Jesus, I see it. Will you forgive me? Will you wash me of my sins? Will you save me? I know that you can. I see that you are God. One final indicator that Jesus wants you to see is glory. He is so intent on showing it to you that he will show it to people all around you. Apparently, you're not the only person he wants to see it. Look at verses 53 to 56 just quickly. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the the people immediately recognized Jesus. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. These verses really just provide a a final summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry. 
He's compassionately healing everyone who comes to him believing that he can do that sort of thing. Unlimited compassion, unlimited power, and he turns no one away. God puts his glory on display everywhere, and he's so intent on you seeing it that it won't just show up in your life. It's everywhere you look. He loves you. And as we wrap up, I think it's just going back to where we started. He's so intent on showing you his glory, but why? Well, for starters, he wants you to become one of his disciples. But if that's occurred, why does he keep showing it to you? In order to make you a better disciple. These 12 on the boat, they need to see Jesus' glory. He is training them. He is equipping them. He is preparing them. He is making them stronger. Why would he show his glory to you? For those same reasons. He loves you. And he wants to make you a better disciple. Would you bow your heads with me?